Today, we're going to cover a section that has actually created a few headaches with believers down the ages. Um, one scholar calls this section one of the most dismal sections of the entire Bible. What a way to introduce our sermon today. The young church in Acts needed to navigate this relatively quickly as faith started going beyond Jewish borders and um, it called for a significant meeting of theological minds even then. Uh, it's, uh, it's been one of those things that the church has grappled with over the years and, um, and even today I've noticed that modern believers don't have a really good grasp on this and uh, we sort of this is one we've kind of probably let go through to the keeper and probably gone with the idea of, yeah, that's just the way it is. But sometimes we don't, that doesn't really explain ourselves properly in a world that's watching us closely. So uh, we've got a bit of, it's going to be an interesting one today. So uh, we're going to start, we're going to read, read some sections from chapter 11. And uh, it's 47 verses. I'm not doing all of it. I'm just going to show you the juicy bits that probably helps make the point today. So uh, we'll start at verse 1. And we'll just go through a few, uh, some basic verses here at the start. So verse 1, let's read together. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Say to the Israelites, Of all the animals that live on land, these are the ones you may eat. You may eat any animal that is a divided hoof and that chews the cud. There are some that only chew the cud or only have a divided hoof, but you must not eat them. The camel, though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof. It is ceremonially unclean for you. The hyrax, though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof. It is unclean for you. The rabbit, though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof. It is unclean for you. And the pig, though it has a divided hoof, does not chew the cud. It is unclean for you. You must not eat their meat or touch their carcasses. They are unclean for you. Of all the creatures living in the water of the seas and the streams, you may eat any that have fins and scales. But all creatures in the seas or streams that do not have fins and scales, whether among all the swarming things or among all other living creatures in the water, you are to regard as unclean. And since you are to regard them as unclean, you must not eat their meat. You must regard their carcasses as unclean. Anything living in the water that does not have fins and scales is to be regarded as unclean by you. Down to verse 32. When one of them dies and falls on something, that article, whatever its use, will be unclean whether it is made of wood, cloth, hide or sackcloth. Put it in water. It will be unclean till evening, then it will be clean. If one of them falls into a clay pot, everything in it will be unclean and you must break the pot. Any pot you are allowed to eat that has come into contact with water from any such pot is unclean. And any liquid that is drunk from such a pot is unclean. And anything that one of their carcasses falls on becomes unclean or even an oven or cooking pot must be broken up. They are unclean and you are to regard them as unclean. A spring, however, or a system for collecting water remains clean, but anyone who touches one of these carcasses is unclean. If a carcass falls on any seeds that are to be planted, they remain clean, but if any water has been put on the seed and a carcass falls on it, it is unclean for you. Mm. Now, if you know me well, you know I like to be a bit of a foodie. You don't build this petite temple without having a grasp on food, right? <laughs> and I absolutely, I've got this big, there's one, one of those things I really want to get done is to actually go to like this, the Daniel markets. I've, I've 
where, you know, in Melbourne, there's this massive market and, and I really wanted to go, there's a spice shop there, like to make herbs and spices, beautiful place. And, and I actually want to go in there with like a thousand bucks and just buy one of everything. It's like, there's this, there is something, I just love to explore flavours, I love to explore sources and herbs and, and I love to consider how veggies and how, uh, well, less so veggies, but more so meat, how I like to flavour those things. And, and, and try to, uh, yeah, um, yeah, work out how to pull that, that, that taste and that succulence out of it, you know? I love all that stuff. And going to markets and seeing all the sauces and trying all those different things, just love it. But there's a limit to the proteins that I'll actually consider worthy of spicing up and cooking. For me, I love my steak. Had a really bad one last night, but I don't mind a steak. I, 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 love, I love lamb. Love roast lamb. I tolerate chicken. I've got bad memories of my mum steaming chicken. The smell of that. Oh, my goodness. But, but a good bit of chicken that's been baked up really nice and herbs. Yeah, I can handle that. Love gamey meats. Goat, venison, kangaroo. I usually won't touch fish. I'm being challenged with that this week. I've got to eat some salmon tonight. See how I go. It will be. And sorry, fellas, but I don't like pork. There's something about pork. I, uh, the, again, uh, bacon, yeah, okay. Pork chops, crackling, pork belly, not my thing. Can't do it. I, I say all this because we all have a food, co- food code. There's always, there's this, we all have this thing that it's built into us. We will run with that food. We will, will not touch that. You know, if you go, you know, some will go to the markets and some of these, like, you know, Singapore and stuff like that, and you'll see, you know, like, you know, bugs on a stick, and you'll go, I'm going to try, I'm down for that, and other people are just going to go, no way, all right? You'll go to Scotland, and you'll be treated to haggis, and you'll go, no way. Others are going to bring it on. We've got this code, right, that just says, you know, I, I, you know we're either resonating or repelling with whatever's set before us, and, and uh, we all have different standards for that. In many Eastern cultures, food and religion is deeply intertwined. We saw this late last year when we looked at 1 Corinthians and we looked at their problem of meat being offered to idols. I also spoke back then of the Phuket attraction. Fantasy, if you've not been there, that's a bit of a snippet. That's one of the banquet halls. And all the food, the buffet food is eaten in the company and under the watchful eye of a million Buddha statues all around the place. It's a shrine and a, and a, and a reference to, the, to Buddhism and a celebration of, the, of their, their take and the food is done under, in, sort of under the shadow of that. In my younger years, I hung around Springvale in, in Melbourne. I was, uh, that was the neighbourhood I sort of grew up in and it was a predominantly Vietnamese neighbourhood. And I remember going to one of the fur restaurants, the Vietnamese restaurants, and walking in and I caught a glimpse of the kitchen. And I'm watching them make food, and, and this might put you off your food or whatever, but the guys lovingly prepared the meal. It's, it's stacked, the plate's there. And then he delicately kissed it, sat it in front of a shrine in the, in the kitchen, and then gave it to the waiter to put out. Interesting. 
I don't know what put me off more, the shrine or the kissing. We know as early as Noah that there was already a basic distinction of clean and unclean animals in play. Seven clean animals got in the ark and only one pair of unclean animals. So with all the pagan eastern world watching a new nation form, Israel coming out of Egypt, and this nation has a challenge set before them to become a holy people that reflects the glory and the rule of God, it should come as no surprise that God was deeply interested in the details of their diets. The whole chapter goes for 47 verses, as I said. Pretty much, it it speaks into the whole food chain and and it sort of generalises and gives guides. Some of those are a little bit misguided. We know rabbits don't chew the cud, but it was just how it appeared to be. But it's basically distinguished what could be eaten by God's people and what could not be. You are a separate people and I have separated a diet for you. I read out a bit the bits about mammals and fish here, but insects, birds and reptiles are also covered in some detail. When John the Baptist ate locusts in the wilderness, he was actually eating clean food. Anything with a padded or furry paw was off the menu. My dogs were safe. Any birds or reptiles that were clearly carnivorous are off the menu. Anything in the waters that were filter or scavenger, bottom feeder type animals. These were not to be considered for food. But when you think about it, there was actually plenty there that could be eaten. Really good stuff too. Steak was okay. Lamb savlakis, bring it on. Snapper would be great if you were good enough to catch it. There were many items, however, that we call delicacies today that were off the menu. But there was also some really good sustainable food which was permitted and they could readily produce it and they could readily consume it. And everything permitted would be called clean food. With the food chain being brought into the holiness spectrum of God's people, God is taking special interest even in what they consume and what they bring about in becoming a clean people. their food was also declared clean. It's amazing. Now, some of that clean food could then, in worship settings, become holy food. But if it was unclean to start with, you can't go there. You could definitely keep them around as pets and around work animals. You couldn't kill them off. You couldn't set rat mousetraps around the place because you'd be unclean if you handled them. You lived in the wilderness. There was going to be wild animals all around the place. If, if you had a cockroach go over you at night, you know, other than the ear factor, it would be okay. You know, you just, you know, as long as you didn't kill it, and, you know, whoops, no church for me today. But it was, they were able to actually, they eventually had horses as an army. They probably had already tamed some camels at this stage. They probably had donkeys. Jesus rode an unclean beast into Jerusalem. But you'd become ceremonially unclean if you decided to eat them or handle them if they died. Simple as. But then there is a gracious picture in it too. 
if you became unclean from it, the uncleanness... Look, I heard a, thing, a preacher last week, or two weeks ago, in a very throwaway line talk about, the law was pretty much there to expose how bad you were and if you broke it, they took you outside the camp and stoned you. Very general, very misguided. In this case, you're unclean for a day. At the end of the day, wash your clothes, wash your body, don't go to the tabernacle till tomorrow. And that was the standard set down for the people. If you come into contact with uncleanness, go through a process, clean up, and then ponder how you'll go to the holiness of God when you go to worship. The questions for all that is, why? Why did God separate the animals in this way? Why did God go to great lengths to determine this is your diet and this is what you don't touch? The other question for us as believers, we all kind of have realised that by now that we have probably all eaten unclean food at least in the last three days. And yet here we are in worship well, hopefully we had a shower this morning, that might have changed it. But we, uh, we, we come into God's presence today still feeling free to worship Him and to know Him and interact with Him. Something for us as believers definitely changed, even if we don't know how to articulate it, right? There's definitely a link to clearly carnivorous and carrion eating animals being off the menu. With the Jews being told they cannot consume blood or touch dead things, this actually might be a thing, one of the reasons why there's some of these food is decided to be unclean. The things that crawl on the ground has been said to be perhaps a nod to symbolic of the serpent, what he was reduced to. Therefore, it's unclean animals. There's been a suggestion that some of the unclean animals have significance in other pagan religious settings. And if you look at different mythologies and different, you know, uh, different things, you can see that the different animals were used as gods and different things like that. Our problem is that, in these, that some of these have some merit for some instances. They actually don't cover the overarching reason of why God would do this. In fact, animals God called clean were also used in pagan worship. Another common thought is the one about health reasons. And again, there's merit in this, right? You know, the animals spoken here seem to be more risky to consume than others. All right, shellfish today, you know, we've got dozens of allergies over that. We've got that may contain traces of fish label on some of our packaging. For that reason, we have allergies, we have issues. Um, pork, if it's cooked badly, can go all sorts of bad for us. Um, different animals, you know, different things can go wrong. In context of Leviticus, however, this is a teaching of becoming a holy people. And for me personally, I actually believe this is one, one that's actually not the overall encompassing reason either. I see Leviticus as more of a lesson in spirituality and obedience than one of personal health. We also know from ancient history that many of those unclean animals were consumed by other cultures with little ill effect. And rancid lamb or beef or clean species of fish can be equally harmful. 
Any animal can carry a number of infections and not be visibly affected. And for the most part, if any animal that most would consider good for food, if it was killed, inspected for obvious problems like worms, then butchered and cooked well in short order, you'd usually be fine. If you've been hunting and you've gone pig shooting and you've put one on a spit or cooked one on a barbecue afterwards or if you've gone fishing and you've found an eel and you've thrown her on the grill, I call it finding fish. I don't call it catching because I'm not good enough to catch. Just they magically appear on my hook. I don't get why. And also when Jesus declared all food to be clean, I believe there was theological significance to that. It wasn't because food handling or storage was any different. Kelvin had still hadn't arrived. But I will draw our attention to one really compelling reason. It's actually stated in verse 44. And uh, I think, you know, look, all, these, all the reasons that have been stated here, all these four and others, there's merit in those things as to why God would separate this food for this people. But the biggest one, I think, is actually in the Scriptures in verse 44. And it's simply this. I am the Lord your God. Concentrate, concentrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. Do not make yourselves unclean by any creature that moves along the ground. I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy because I am holy. These are the regulations concerning animals, birds, every living thing that moves about in the water and every creature that moves along the ground. You must distinguish between the unclean and the clean, between living creatures that may be eaten and those that may not be eaten. That is the most compelling reason for the food separation to the people of Israel at the time. I am God. I redeemed you. I got you out of Egypt. I set you apart to be my personal people. My people reflect who I am and I am holy. And being holy comes with the responsibility of being mindful of all that you touch and all that you consume. But not according to your own subjective standard, but according to the Holy One set out by our Holy God. Whether we understand it or not, whether we know all the reasons or not, a distinction has been made and ultimately it's a case of God being holy and sovereign and His holy people being obedient to that. That is perhaps the biggest reason to look at this. And even at that point, is there anything in us that that is perhaps fighting against that principle? Is there a a sovereign God call in your life to do something or an instruction you're receiving or or, or a word that you're getting? And you're not acting on it. You're not receiving that, not doing anything with it. Is there elements of disobedience that our sovereign God is calling us to do something? Speaking into us. Let's get back to the food. What changed? Why do liberal media outlets call us hypocrites because we'll happily die on the hill of chapter 18 but largely ignore chapter 11? And why did you all just flick through to chapter 18 now? Why did some of us eat bacon and egg McMuffins on the way here and not get fried as we entered worship? Chapter 18 will be interesting to answer that. We'll get to that in a few weeks. 
But chapter 11 is actually relatively straightforward for, for us because Jesus himself made it pretty easy to address. Mark 7. After he left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked, don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared, all foods clean. He went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them, for it is from within out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. We actually don't need unclean food to make us unclean. Something in us is already lurking. Throughout the journey of Israel before Christ, The clean-slash-unclean dichotomy existed for a reason. They were constantly aware that they lived in a fallen world. Leviticus is the centre book of a whole collection of writing that includes even creation and Eden. God called all creation good in that collection of writing. All life sacred, all animals clean. There was no death. It was the fall that changed that. The earth suffered because of man's fall. Therefore, in a fallen world, it was imperative that a set-apart people would only concern themselves with the thing God had cleansed, just for them and the foreigners who would join them. For the plan of redeeming the whole world, it was deeply important for this one nation to be mindful of who they were. They were the bearers of the redemption plan of God. But with the arrival of Christ, this dichotomy was brought to an end. There is an end game to the coming of Christ, which we read about in the end of Revelation. Essentially, the order of Eden will be restored. And God will be among his people and everything will be clean. Everything will be holy. And the arrival of Christ began that progress. When Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it was within reach. It was, it was here, not fully realised. We don't go into a triumphalist sort of mindset here, but there are elements of the kingdom way that are in play now and inaugurated because Christ arrived. With this now but not yet kingdom arrangement, it should be no surprise that some things would change. Unclean things would become clean again. This is further signified in Acts 10 with Peter getting caught up in a vision, the well-known one. I like the Sunday school picture one. The sheet of unclean animals being presented to him with the Lord inviting him to kill and eat. God's personal response to, you know, but Peter refuses on Jewish grounds. I haven't touched any of that stuff. I know I shouldn't. And God personally responds this way, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Now he uses the images of animals being clean here. But in context, 
It was to signify that the separateness of the Jewish way was now being brought down in order for the Gentiles to begin hearing the gospel. In that particular passage, that started with the Roman guy and the messengers he'd sent knocking on his door that very moment. But the two ideas are intertwined. You see, the young church, the, ch- the young church was at that time 100% completely Jewish. And it needed to reach the Gentiles with the gospel. Now, this is simply the Jews' intended purpose, right from Genesis 12. You, out of your seed, the nations will be blessed. And now we're going into a place where religion and food were intertwined. And we also know that the church did its best missional work in the arena of hospitality and food. So some unclean things needed to be made clean again for that to happen. The people who were about to be reached first and in order to reach them, their food as well. That's what changed for believers. That's why we, we, we say no in the same-sex marriage debate but also eat shellfish. That's why there's some things we uphold. We'll look at why, why we uphold that shortly but we look at why this one has gone out. It's not something we do now. But in this, the church is still being warned to maintain a standard of being a holy people. I am God and I am holy stood out in that last passage we read. And it's Peter who had this revelation and and initiated this Gentile reach. It was Peter who writes in 1 Peter 1.15. He re-quotes Leviticus in that regard. God is holy, so we still have a challenge to be a holy people. Therefore, the principle of what we touch and what we consume still has an effect in today's life. It just does not necessarily mean food anymore. Let's read on. Chapter 12. I just want to look at this real briefly and I'm going to go into communion with this. The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, A woman who becomes pregnant and gives birth to a son will be ceremonially unclean for seven days, just as she is unclean during her monthly period. On the eighth day, the boy is to be circumcised. Then the woman must wait 33 days to be purified from her bleeding. She must not touch anything sacred or go to the sanctuary until the days of her purification are over. If she gives birth to a daughter, for two weeks the woman will be unclean as during her period. Then she must wait 66 days to be purified from her bleeding. When the days of her purification for a son or daughter are over, she is to bring to the priest at the entrance to the tent of meeting a year-old lamb for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or a dove for a sin offering. He shall offer them before the Lord to make atonement for her and then she will be ceremonially clean from her flow of blood. These are the regulations for the woman who gives birth to a boy or a girl. But if she cannot afford a lamb, she is to bring two doves or two young pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. In this way, the priest will make atonement for her and she will be clean. 
Let's get into communion with this and stewards be ready shortly. The act of birth has and always will be a beautiful and miraculous thing. Sacred life is produced in the womb of a woman. It is truly amazing, right? I'm not a parent, but I've talked to a lot of dads and a lot of pride and a lot of tears when they consider what their wives have gone through to bear their son or daughter. And it's even more miraculous in the ancient setting with no pain meds, no epidurals and greater risk to the women giving birth and and the child. There is no reliable explanation to explain why the birth of a daughter gets a longer stay at home than the birth of a son. In the spirit of transparency, there's definitely a reason if God said it, but we're not certain what it is. I've heard some rather chauvinistic ones. I'm not touching it. There is no reason to feel compelled to circumcise your sons either. This is very, very clearly stated to Gentile Christians in the New Testament. It's one of the main things Paul wrote against. And instead, it signifies something that should be taking place in our hearts anyway. But there is something significant to consider in the offering process and the issue of cleanness here. Women had a period of unclean time after birth simply because there was a lot of blood and healing that had to be done. Staying away from blood was one of God's big rules. We'll see next week that even men with certain discharges enter a place of being unclean also. And that both genders can be barred from worship for this reason. Basically, the only blood God wants to see anywhere near his holy place is that which has been sacrificed and poured out before him. And none of that comes from us. Throughout the whole series, we're clearly seeing that it is the blood of another. You don't go into the tabernacle and the priest walks around you, checking you out to see what you're offering. He looks at the offering that you have. And when we come into God's presence, even today, he's not looking around you going, what do you got? Jesus has already paid it. And God looks and sees us and sees the offering that comes with us, which is Jesus already the sin offering for us. No other blood can make its way into that place. Simply from that physical limitation, there is a gap. But there's also a sobering reminder here that even in the beauty of birth, we're still bearing the marks of being a fallen people. This is why a sin offering is presented at the end of the purification process. It was this very offering that even Mary offered in the temple 40 days after the birth of our Saviour. 
even in his infancy, Jesus was completely faithful to the law that he stated 1,500 years prior. But he would also be the one who would complete what his earthly parents were required to do. If it calls for blood, it has been completed in Christ. Believing new mothers in the room, if you gave birth yesterday and you're here today, you are clean. The sin offering that is described in Leviticus for such an occasion actually cannot be offered anymore. It's amazing that the womb would be the source of God's salvation plan. We see it in Genesis, after the fall. Yes, you're going to be fallen and as a result of the fall there will be increased travail and distress in childbirth. But out of the seed of the woman is going to come, come the one who will crush the serpent's head. The miraculous seed of a woman. Women don't produce seed. In 1 Timothy, I think it's chapter 2, Paul writes about men and women in church and talks, you know, talks that Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the only one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness and propriety. This doesn't mean that a woman's going to be saved from pain of giving birth. It actually does highlight that the birth of a child will create salvation if you do the study of that. So God took the womb of the woman and used it for his glory, for the redemption of the world. For us to think that, no, we've just got to keep the little lady at home and make her stay there for 66 days because she had a child, doesn't stand. There was blood involved. There was a reason for the tabernacle. It wasn't a chauvinistic God. It was actually practicality. But there's also a beauty and a reminder and a pointer to the work of Christ and what comes out of the womb. As we come to the communion table today, I see two challenges for us today. One, as we reflect on the work of Christ in our life and as we reflect on the Spirit of Christ enabling us to continually become a holy people, What other things are we consuming or touching or going near that still have a tinge of uncleanness about it? There are still unclean things in our life. might not be food, it could be other things. Are we consuming or touching things we should not be? Well, we need Jesus to help us through that. And he's paid the price even for that guilt that you feel because of that.
Paul in 1 Corinthians calls us to use this time to continually remember Christ's death until he comes. Today we all bear marks and discharges of ourselves because we're still fallen humans even though we're redeemed by Christ. And yet we freely worship God because the sin offering for that has been paid. And we can come freely into his presence because Jesus has shed his blood once for all. No other offering will ever be needed. No other offering is sufficient. And we are free by the blood of Jesus. And in this Leviticus journey, it's very, very clear. God takes sin seriously. God takes bloodshed seriously. God takes life, all aspects of life, seriously. But we can also see that even there, the work of Christ would pick us up. Where we fall short, his work keeps us moving on. When we become unclean, the work of Christ makes us clean again. And we can come and we can remember that today. Every day we need his grace. Every day we need the cross. Every day we are free from the Levitical law because of Jesus. Let's remember Christ until he comes as we come around the communion table today. Let's pray.